So I am the founder of Scott's Cheap Flights. It's a subscription-based email list where a team, actually, we spend all day, every day goofing off on Google Flights and Skyscanner and Kayak and the like, and basically trying to hunt down some of those really, really cheap flights that tend to pop up from time to time. So, you know, we're talking like your $400 flights to, you know, round trip flights to Europe, your $350 round trip flights to Japan, those types of like really good fares that when they do pop up often only last four or five or six hours at most. And so our mission basically is to find those fares almost as soon as they pop up and then send them out to subscribers with instructions, you know, about like when it's available, how to book it, you know, how long I think it will last, what I think the normal price is on that route, and then like a sample search that they can use to try to book it and get it to folks with enough time left before it might disappear so that they can actually book at these really, really cheap rates. I'll give you just a real quick example. Yesterday morning, we sent out a slew of deals from the US to Amsterdam and actually all over Europe, but especially Amsterdam. There were flights from Atlanta to Amsterdam for 458 bucks round trip, which I don't know if you, many of your listeners are in Atlanta, they'll know how horrendous flight prices can be from there because of the big Delta monopoly. You know, they just monopolize all the flights out of there. And so it's pretty rare for cheap flights to pop up. So $458 nonstop to Europe is close to unheard of. So we sent that out. A bunch of people booked it. It was great. I checked that fare again this morning, you know, literally 24 hours later. It had jumped from $458 to $1,145. Exact same flight, exact same dates, everything. But a, literally a matter of 24 hours, it jumped about $700, you know, more than double the price. So, you know, it's just a small example, but those are the types of things that we're looking, you know, skip those $1,200 flights to Europe, come on board, get those $400 flights to Europe. Well, nice. Yeah. So when do you start doing this Scott's Sheep flights and why don't you just kind of take it from there? Do you have a normal job? Did you get that right out of college or how did it happen? Yeah. So actually I, out of college, I had a bit of a circuitous segue into the cheap flights world. I was actually a journalist for years in Washington, D.C. I covered politics, news, current events. What happened then was I had been traveling a lot for work. You know, they just sent me on the road to these different events and whatnot. And so being underpaid journalists, fresh out of college, I was like, okay, how can I sort of maximize my situation here? And so one of the sort of fringe benefits was frequent flyer miles. And so I just started researching a little bit more about them, started getting into like, okay, I don't have a big salary. My bank account has like at best one comma in it. Right. And I, but I'd still like to get out and see Europe. I'd still like to get out and see South America and everything. And so I just started to research a little bit more about like how to best use frequent flyer miles, how to generate them and get good value and everything. And then that sort of led me into that frequent flyer mile world. And so after kind of getting into that game for a couple of years, I ended up writing an ebook on, it's called How to Fly for Free. It was just all about, again, how to generate these miles, how to use them for free flights, you know, to Galapagos Islands, to Europe, Asia, wherever, which was much more attainable than I had thought. I'd always sort of assumed this stuff was a scam. I figured it was a zero sum game. Like if it's good for the airlines, then it's bad for consumers. And if it was bad for the airlines, then they wouldn't offer frequent flyer miles. So like, why am I going to play their game? Without getting too far down this rabbit hole, what I didn't realize is that it can be bad for some consumers and good for ones who are smart and savvy about it. And so I set off to try to not only be smart and savvy about it, but also kind of write this book to demystify the process for other folks and say, like, you know, it's this frequent flyer mile world is purposefully opaque. Like the airlines don't want you to redeem your miles. 
So here's how you can still, you can do it and here's what to expect and here's how to get those miles and use them properly. And eventually I sort of realized like, you know, I had like a lot of people who are really appreciative and got a lot out of that book. But at the end of the day, most folks aren't interested in opening up credit cards to get frequent flyer miles. And, you know, it's a bit of a convoluted process. So I just started thinking about it more and it's like, you know, look, most people, if they're getting a trip, they're just going to take their credit card out and just book it. I started thinking, you know, what are all the tips that I know and all the methods and tricks that I can use for when you're buying a flight to make sure that you're getting the best price possible. So I ended up compiling all these different tips and tricks into a second ebook called How to Find Cheap Flights. And what I then also did right about this time was I started a little email list for my friends. I had gotten the best deal I ever got in my life, which is 130 bucks round trip from New York City to Milan. And incredible trip. Didn't even know I wanted to go to Milan, but for 130 bucks, of course I'm going to go. Yeah. And then so when I got back from that, you know, I had all these friends who were asking me, like, Scott, can you let me know next time you see a deal like that so I can get in on it? And so rather than try to remember, you know, each individual person I needed to tell, I decided, okay, let me just start this little email list so I can just tell everybody at once. And so, you know, for the first year or two, it was actually just a hobby of mine. Like, I just kind of enjoyed, like, searching for flights. It was just a little, it's almost like a little treasure hunt, like knowing there's something really valuable out there and I want to go find it. Right. And so I'd sort of get a thrill and a kick out of uh, finding that and then letting other people know. And, you know, there's that satisfaction of helping your friends get really good deals. And then so over time, that ended up growing from, you know, just a couple dozen friends to 5,000. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it was both a blessing and a curse because, you know, it was a curse because all of a sudden I had to pay hosting fees for MailChimp. And like, I enjoyed sending these deals out to my friends. I didn't really want to pay for the privilege to, right. you know, do a favor for my friends. But, you know, it's also sort of a blessing because I realized, oh, wow, there's kind of an interest here. Like there's some demand for this. I wonder if there's a business opportunity there. You know, and I came into this. I didn't have any business back. Never set out to be an entrepreneur. Never taken a business course in my life. But I was like, you know, maybe there's something actually here. And then so just about two years ago, sort of retooled, revamped and launched the official Scottsdale Flights business. So I guess when you're growing from just your friends to 5,000, where your friends just forward into their friends and then they ask to be put on the list, let's just say a dozen friends to 5,000. That's almost more of a curious jump than from like, say, 5,000. So what happened? Yeah, today we're over 600,000. Okay, yeah. What had happened though, you know, in that sort of yada, yada, yada over the like few dozen to 5,000, mm-hmm. what happened is over the course of about 18 months, it grew from like a few dozen to maybe like three or 400, just a natural word of mouth spreading. And then in about March or April 2015, I posted a little map on Facebook that about this like round the world trip that my now fiance and I were about to take together. And just like 20 countries or like 13 countries, like 20 different flights, like all, you know, all around the world, all for free with frequent flyer miles. And so lo and behold, a friend of mine who worked at Business Insider was like, oh, wow, that looks like an interesting story. Like, can I flag this for my colleague and she might interview you? And you know, sure, absolutely. You know, again, at this time I was a journalist, so I was, wasn't used to being like the subject of a story. So then she emailed me and was like, yeah, can I talk to you? So right before left on this trip, sat down, did like a 45 minute interview for her. She ended up putting up a story, you know, with one of these very kind of made for viral headlines. Mm-hmm you know, man travels world 20,000 miles for two months, all for free, something like that. And so as one of these that just had 250, 300, 400,000 different uh, views, and like almost literally overnight, 
I woke up like one night, it was at 400 people on this list, and the article had a link to that email list. So, you know, literally, the, when I went to bed, there were 400 people on it. When I woke up, there were 5,000. Wow. And so, you know, it was just this sort of gift and opportunity that sort of fell into my lap. Where, you know, again, and that sort of put me in that position of like trying to figure out, okay, how do I make sure that I like take advantage of this opportunity and do right by it? Because I'm sure as any entrepreneur knows, getting the first, like, it's way easier to go from like a thousand people to a hundred thousand than it is to go from zero to a thousand. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to reiterate, I guess, kind of how you got there, that small group to 5,000. So, yeah, I mean, and so I got, I got super lucky that I just didn't have to scrap that hard to get to that first thousand. I mean, there are plenty of things, you know, that we did then, but to grow from like 5,000 to 600,000. But in a lot of ways, again, I think that sort of zero to 1,000 is the most difficult time. So luck certainly lucked out on that. While you're traveling then too, did that happen right before you went on with your fiance on this travel? Yeah. I mean, I think when I said like I went to bed and I was 400 and woke up by 5,000, I think that was in like a hotel bed in Mexico City or something. <laughs> oh, wow. Happening. Yeah. My fiance was not too pleased with me because, you know, then there were a lot of like other media requests and interviews and stuff. And so like here we are about to go, you know, literally in the middle of this round the world trip. And I'm sitting there like, uh, can I like go take two hours to do like media calls for right. For a while. Yeah. So she was not thrilled about that. But, you know, she's a saint and, and puts up with me do, taking those t- sorts of liberties. After you start doing that, is that when you start brainstorming more that, hey, maybe I can charge for this and actually make money? Because you're still a reporter at this point in time, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I would working like as a reporter simultaneously. I took these two months in the summertime and then basically trying to decide, you know, what sort of revenue model should I set for the mailing list? And so then I decided, okay, you know, I could sell ads on it. I could have some sort of commission, but I decided in the end to go with the freemium model. So, you know, there's the free list that folks can subscribe for. And then there's premium list that, you know, has additional perks to it. I think I ended up being really beneficial from doing that because all of a sudden, you know, I had this list of people that were already used to getting it for free. And so I didn't want to have to like kick people off or anything. But then B had, without getting too deep into the sort of like businessy marketing weeds here, it's a lot easier asked to take someone from like who hasn't heard of Scotchy Flight to then just ask them to sign up for a free newsletter than it is to ask them to go from zero to paying for it. You know what I mean? And so like we actually like the fact that they can take this small step to begin with, get a sense of how Scott's Cheap Flights works. And then, you know, once they like it, once they feel like it's useful and interesting to them, only then can they decide, okay, yeah, maybe I do want the sort of additional perks of the premium list. Maybe this is something that I want to like be getting more of. Yeah, I feel like it ends up leading to more satisfaction as well. Yeah, I'll actually vouch for that because actually I did hear about you, I think in February, I was a, at a conference and they said, go ahead and check this out. So I went over there, signed up for the free one. And then after like a month of, you know, getting good deals, I'm like, shit, I'll go ahead and try to pay for the premium one because, you know, it's very straightforward, your newsletter. I think very good and then yeah it's exactly what you just said it, it wasn't like a lot of garbage because people were kind of worried at first where it might be those data scrapers that are just sending junk to mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. but i'll say yeah after i got on that then you know started getting more deals and actually i just booked my honeymoon actually to oh, australia nice. and the philippines through using your oh nice using one of your flight and actually i don't even know how you're able to find it because i'm pretty good at finding flight deals as well and then 
you said it, I've gone to Europe a few times for a couple of weeks and back and forth, but you had this two for one flights in Southeast Asia. It was like Bangkok mm-hmm. and out of the Philippines. It's just kind of amazing that you're able to find some of these. Yeah. Yeah. I would not have expected before I got into this that like flight searching can be this much of a sort of like, I don't want to overgrandize and call it an art form, right. but at least like a skill, you know, that like, but it's partly if like almost anything in life, if you spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day doing it, you're going to get really good at it, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to like know how to distinguish between like what's the really good stuff and what's the sort of riffraff. It's almost like I was just talking with another journalist the other day about the sort of cheap flight list model and how it's sort of been almost the next evolution from going from travel agents to then these online travel agents, you know, your kayak and orbits and stuff where everybody can search for themselves, find their own deals. But then they don't actually know, you know, unless you're doing this so often, you don't actually know, like, is $700 round trip to Rome, is that a good deal? Right. Is that a bad deal? Like, like, you know, you really, without like context and without somebody who's been doing this for a while, it's hard to kind of determine. And so I think this almost paradox of choices has developed where people are overwhelmed with information. So it's really easy to just sort of throw your hands up. So that sort of opens an opportunity for folks like us here at Scott's Cheap Flights to be like, yeah, let us be your sort of advocate. Let us be your concierge who's sifting through all this information and we'll We'll let you know, you know, only what are the good deals and we'll let you know as soon as they pop up and like hopefully you'll be able to get them before they disappear. But yeah, I guess when you're jumping from, let's say the list where you're finally got up to 5,000, can you kind of take us from there? And when you started thinking, hey, you know, we are going to make this a business model, how you kind of figure out prices and how you started growing your team because yeah, had any experience in that before or now? A couple things. So I know I had not. Yeah. It was just, again, a very lucky accident that I even had this opportunity to begin with. So when this popped up and all of a sudden I've got 5,000 people and I'm trying to figure out, okay, can I actually turn this into a business? You know, all the horror stories of businesses trying to go from like trying to raise prices, much less going, trying to go from free to paid. I mean, just look at all the, you know, sort of like newspapers that put all their content online for free first and then tried to put in a paywall and everybody just revolting. Like, it's a really difficult thing. And so I was very cognizant of like, oh man, this want to do this carefully so I don't like alienate everybody and ruin this opportunity. And so I started out just at two bucks a month. Like that, you know, I just said like, okay, you know, I'm going to do, everybody can still stay on the list. I'm going to have a separate additional premium list where instead of where all the deals are going to go to the premium list, whereas just one out of every three go to the free list. Premium list gets it 30 minutes before the free list. A couple other perks like that. And then two bucks a month to get on the premium list. I wanted to purposely set a really low price point just to see, can I even get enough? You know, I think my hosting costs at that point were like 40, 40 bucks a month. So can I get 20 people to commit two bucks a month? just to like break even. And, you know, for the first couple of days, I wasn't sure. I launched it, you know, I sent out the email to everybody on the list, like, hey, here's what's happening, two bucks a month, that'd be great. And it was slow going the first couple of days. But then, you know, I think by the end of the first month, we had, there was 100 or 115 or something. So, you know, I was already making a little bit of a profit. So I was happy, I was thrilled. Because all of a sudden, you know, I realized, you know, I had more than covered my cost, but B, there was an actual opportunity to continue here. And then so things just kept going up and up from there. It was very sort of serendipitous. Then a couple months later, when I met my business partner, he just a sort of budding entrepreneur who didn't interview like a website he was building. 
And I, you know, we just happened to cross paths at a time when I really started to get overwhelmed with the amount of work that was needed to keep things running. And so, you know, I just, you know, like, hey, this is totally out of the blue. I should, I want to actually go back and read this email sometime, but it's kind of funny now, but totally emailed him out of the blue, never met him. He was living in, I think, California, but about to move to Southeast Asia and just asked him like, hey, do you want to like come on board here? You know, we can split money 50-50, like yada, yada, yada. He did, luckily, and it ended up being like an incredibly lucky match that, and again, I really want to emphasize how lucky we are here because I've read so many horror stories about, you know, business partnerships gone awry and, you know, just it not working. And I'm sure that is triply the case when you do that with someone that you don't really know. I don't know if I was just desperate or stupid or foolhardy. I think we just both got really lucky because not only did he turn out to be incredibly competent, but our skill sets really complemented one another's. I was really good at sort of doing writing and media and, well, obviously flight searching. And then he was really good at sort of behind the scenes, you know, operations and marketing and like building out sort of internal system, all these sorts of like things that you don't really see on the foreground, but are super, super crucial for making a company run well. And then so we just got lucky from there, you know, and this was, gosh, the end of 2015, I think, that he came on board. And then let's see, I think we brought on a third employee just about it. Well, before we jump to that, can we just talk about like life before and life after you had that partner? I mean, what was that work life balance like? I mean, where you said you're kind of reaching a breaking point, because I think a lot of people who are starting companies kind of hit that point and don't know what to do. Sure, sure. So I was still working as a journalist at this time. I was doing that still part-time freelance up through February of 2016. So for the first six months or so of launching as, you know, after Scott's Few Flights launched as an official business, I was still working as a journalist because, you know, I didn't know, like most startups fail, most startups, you know, don't really make much money. I had no idea how long this thing was going to last or anything. So, you know, didn't want to like put all my eggs in one basket. It had grown big enough and was making enough revenue by February 2016 that it just became clear that like, this is where my time and talent should be devoted. Like I had to do right by it. And so at that point, I gave up journalism and to devote myself full time to the cheap flights world. In terms of work life balance, I mean, for a while, you know, when I was first starting out, and there were just 5,000, 10,000 subscribers and stuff. It was actually, I had much more of a work-life balance because it was just me. And then for a while, you know, me and my business partner, and we would just sort of, I would do the work when it's needed, but it was a lot more kind of, it was a lot less professional. Mm -hmm. Not And like, again, even today, we keep a very sort of informal tone and all that stuff, but it was still new and fresh. And so I didn't, there actually wasn't that much work initially. By about the time that I started to go on full-time, so, you know, February, March, 2016, give or take, that's when things started to really ramp up. And I realized like, and my obligation to it has really ramped up. So, you know, rather than it just being sort of being like a fun side hustle or something that it did 10, 20 hours a week. I mean, now it's full like startup. This is our baby, like devoting anything and everything time to it. Definitely to a fault to the point where like, I don't have nearly as much of like a life outside of this as I probably could or should. And so now I'm sort of in the process of trying to build systems to like extract myself a little bit from some of the day to day, if that makes sense, like start to try to wind down my hours to a much more manageable level. Because, you know, 
it's fun and great to be going for 80, 100 hours a week on something that's a real passion project, but that's not sustainable over the long term. And certainly not sustainable if you have like a significant other who would also like to hang out with you. Take a little bit of your time. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> or like a dog or, or anything else like that. So, yeah, in the process right now of trying to uh, make it a little bit more sustainable for the long term. I guess even now, is it still kind of its peak where it's been? Or, and like I said, it sounds like you're putting at least some systems in place to hopefully take yourself out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, both. You know, I mean, it's still very much in the Nova hockey stick. Again, about a year ago, I think we had three people on the team. Mm -hmm. Today we have 20. Wow. Which, again, might not sound all that impressive, but for someone who never had a business background, never intended to like build anything like this, it's very odd feeling to know that like there's 20 people now on this team. Mm -hmm. Part of that, though, is trying to hire folks. So like a lot of the stuff that would be putting in 100 hours a week on to start to try to be like, OK, want to like hire somebody so I can take like. 10 hours of that out and give it to somebody else or 20 hours of that out and give it to somebody else. It's always a tough, I mean, you ask any entrepreneur, any startup founder, like it's always kind of a tough thing trying to that sort of process because you've been doing things one way for a while. You get very used to it and you get pretty good at it. And not only do you get good at it, but you also start to feel in your head like, I can do this really well. And there's a worry that like, if you bring other people, you know, can they do it to the level that you had done it in the past? You know, feeling like, okay, you know, you can always trust yourself to do it, to do things very adequately. You know, can you say the same of other people? But, you know, it's not like any company, big company can sustain off just the talents and efforts and time of one person. So to a certain extent, you just have to bite the bullet and try to hire good people and try to train them to offload some of your tactics. And then, you know, especially bringing on folks who can do things that you can't do. Like, you know, we have like a great social media manager who does a lot of stuff that I just wouldn't know the first thing about, you know, in terms of like marketing campaigns and social media outreach and stuff like that and ditto with the developers you know on down the line so i mean i'm really really like proud of the team and the effort that everybody's made even if it at times can feel like scary to sort of let go a little bit and trust new folks to carry out your vision oh no well, how did you find those people you said they're all basically remote yeah so a few different ways i mean most folks we actually found posting on facebook travel group Oddly enough, I mean, you know, like I said, everybody works remotely. And so it's nice, you know, we're not restricted to like people just in Colorado where I live or, you know, we can literally do like a worldwide hunt and just say, like, okay, you have to be good at X, Y, and Z, be, be able to put in X, you know, these hours and have a passion for this stuff. And then we can choose among people. Like, I think there's something like nine different countries represented on the team right now, literally all over the world. So, I mean, that's been like <laughs> pretty interesting just building this really kind of remote based team where nobody's ever really met face to face, but everybody is sort of working in the same direction. It's slightly different with the computer developers, just because that's a much more sort of specialized niche project. And so we're lucky we just came across a really talented guy who's kind of our serves as our like chief developer. And then he like among his network, you know, other folks that he's worked with in the past and whatnot, been able to bring other folks on board like that. I mean, hiring is a tough thing because there's always that inherent risk. You don't know, like I can see this person's resume, I can see their past work, but like how do I actually know if they're any good or not? We've gotten really lucky that everybody we've brought on board has been really useful and successful and, and accomplished so far. Who knows if that will always be the case? Right. Well, how about for like the chief developer? Did you find him on a Facebook group too? 
that was very, again, with the serendipity, my partner, Brian, was living down in Colombia at the time. And I think he just like was getting in with some like an expat group or some sort of like digital nomads group in Medellin and came across this guy at a party. He was a developer, like had been in the UK, I think just moved to Medellin, was looking for new opportunities and just kind of right place at the right time. And so that got the ball rolling on other stuff. If you got that great developer when you didn't have that skill set, that's what I was curious about. I don't know if you ever found them through third-party websites or if it's just off through kind of networking people you've hired. Didn't like a little bit of posting on AngelList and somewhere else, but mostly it's been networking. We always go back and forth anytime we have an opening on whether or not we should send it out to the email list. You know, because on the one hand, there's this massive group of people that are potentially interested. On the other hand, you know, you send out one job opening, you're going to get 100 responses and 99 of those people you need to say no to. Right. And so like, how do we feel about saying about like rejecting 99 people who are like paying subscribers, let's say, you know, like yeah. do we, it, it, uh, like, I understood. Hey, sorry, we can't bring you on, but like, yeah. I hope you continue to pay us. Like you're not smart enough. Sorry. Can't join. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> giving us so, your money. Right. We haven't done that yet, but it's a tough thing. It's, you know, we always go back and forth on it. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Because I've got some virtual assistants who work at the Philippines. There's a few of them and they help me out with my business. And I've tried going back and forth is like, hey, do you all know somebody that we can rather than kind of train at their place together in person? But that didn't quite work out. Just a bad fit. And then sometimes you try to you know, I'll use Upwork or something of that nature to try to find another virtual assistant in the Philippines just because that's where I've had the most success and try to find the most qualified. And sometimes you don't know if that person's going to be a good fit or not. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds good that you've gotten pretty lucky to get so far as far as this hires, because that's what I found is the hardest part in talking to different entrepreneurs and they can set you back. And then once you find a good one, you just got to make sure you know treat them well and make sure they stay on the team. Definitely. I mean, I think the fact that the position is always remote is a big selling point for folks because especially in 2017, like we don't have to restrict it, obviously, location wise, but you know, people like a lot of people want to travel while they work, like they want to be in Southeast Asia, they want to be in Europe, they want to be elsewhere, or they just want to like work from home. They don't want to have to like deal with a commute. They won't want to have to like get dressed up to go into the office, show like that, you know, deal with like all the people like jabbering on in the break room and everything. Like they just want to be able to get their work done, be efficient about it. And like, you know, and then all the benefits of like working remotely that you can like go to the gym in the afternoon when it's empty or go to the grocery store when it's empty, go to happy hour while it's like 2 to 4 p.m. happy hour that's still like that's exceptionally cheap stuff like that just little perks like that that I think help being like a little selling point for you know why these positions and ends up being I think like a bring in a higher level quality of candidate than we might otherwise get yeah I think for sure and I think in the future you're going to see that more and more they're talking about more remote workers so yeah absolutely definitely makes more sense so I guess kind of winding down, what's your typical work day look like today? Or do you have any right. routines? Yeah. So I set my alarm for 6.45 a.m. every single morning, wake up and check those flights. You know, like I have just a bunch of different places I like to check, see if anything like popped up really early. Most days it hasn't. Every once in a while it has. And then from there, you know, just log on to Slack. You know, the 20-person team all stays connected via Slack. And so see what, you know, if there are any big issues that have popped up, see what's going on. 
check my email real quick, see if there's any like big fires that I need to put out there. And then assuming, you know, there's nothing like super pressing, then to be honest, I usually go read the news. Again, this like sort of my background in political journalism, still a bit of a news junkie. So I'm still, like always curious what's going on, always have like Twitter open, stuff like that. But then like throughout the day, it's just sort of staying on Google flights, checking different routes, different fares, checking different message boards, seeing what other people are seeing. And when stuff pops up, sending it out or helping train other flight searchers to help get it sent out. And then otherwise, you know, if it's a slow deal day, if stuff's not popping up, maybe I'll, like I said, go to the gym, take my dog for a walk, go to the grocery store, like run little, little errands. But a weird thing, you know, about these flight deals is they can pop up at any time. And so you develop a little bit of fear that something's going to pop up while you're not by your computer. So I've developed a little bit of a habit, probably unhealthy of like, always being somewhat connected to my computer, whether that's like just bringing it with me when I'm like going for a ride or whether that's like even I was at the gym an hour ago. I literally had my computer in my bag just in case like something popped up and so I could like hop on and, and get it sent out real quick or, or anything like that. But other than that, yeah, it's just like monitoring for this day. You know, a lot of times I'll have like media interviews or I'll have trainings for new employees or we'll have new sort of partnerships that I need to help get the ball rolling on. Right now, it caught me at a bit of a like high watermark where I have both flight searching duties. So like trying to, you know, find and send out all the deals that Americans are getting on a daily basis, but also trying to like build and manage the 20 person team so, man, I mean, I know it's such a cliche to say like, oh, every day is different. Like there is no normal day, but there's very little consistency to it. Every day there's something new, something different, some like there's some partnership to work on. There's some new like sort of perk that we want to or spec that we want to build out like on the website. There's some new like giveaway or partnership that someone wants to connect on, on down the line. And so it's nice. That keeps it exciting, keeps it fresh, doesn't takes away some of the monotony that can creep in for to any job that you've been doing for a while. Just so people don't think that like, everything has been perfect. But what's been your hardest moments while you've been doing this? Mm. Was there a t- time that you didn't think you were going to make it? Mm. I definitely had a lot of doubts starting out. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mentioned like I didn't, I was skeptical of even getting 20 folks to pay for it to begin with. I think some of the darker, but more challenging stuff on a today basis. So a lot of what we send up, uh, not a lot, Every once in a while, we send out what are called a mistake fare. Right. So like, for instance, that $130 flight from New York City to Milan, that was a mistake fare in the sense that like, they did not mean to sell me that flight for 130 bucks. You know, they were not making any money on that. Most of the time, airlines will honor mistake fares without getting, you know, too into the weeds on this. Most of the time, they will. Every once in a while, um, they will cancel tickets. Usually it's within, you know, 48, 72 hours or so of booking. But like in the instances that that has happened over the past two years, you know, when we send out a deal and then somebody books it, it's really excited and then they get their ticket canceled. Like that's always a little bit of a bummer. And, you know, even though it's not our fault, like obviously, you know, the people are telling us about it and we start to feel like really of like, oh man, you know, felt bummed like we had a role in that. I think the other main challenge is just sort of from growing pains of like website crashing, email crashing. I mean, you know, things that work really well to send out emails to 6,000 people 
work significantly less well when you're sending to 60,000 and fuck up majorly when you're sending to 600,000 people. And so starting to learn like those sorts of processes, what to, how to avoid breaking things, how not to panic when things break, but still to try to work quickly to fix them. I mean, there have been so many instances like we'll do something like a Reddit AMA that'll get really popular. And then all of a sudden there's a thousand people on the site and it just crashes. Like, what the fuck? You know, you've got a thousand people who want to sign up, like who are there to sign up and they can't get on. Now they're not going to come back. Like, oh God, we're missing this moment. And so, you know, it feels like it, like a legitimate panic. And, you know, and, and it is like a serious thing to fix and rectify. But like, it's easy to sort of lose your head. It's one of the really nice things about having a really like competent, smart business partner to having somebody else who can, you know, you can bounce ideas off of who can and come up with solutions together. So, you know, when that happens, he builds a quick Google form and just take people's, just put in your email address here and then we'll import it later. You know, once we have the site back up and update the Reddit AMA with that, like just a real quick, easy fix like that, that I might not have thought of, frankly, I would have just been sulking in the corner. Like, <laughs> Ah, God, this fucking website, like just losing so many potential subscribers over this. So, yeah, I mean, little growing pains like that, especially for someone like myself who didn't have a entrepreneurial business background that you kind of got to learn along the way. But that, you know, that's what makes it fun. That's the sort of exciting part about it is not knowing all the answers and not knowing whether it's all going to work out, but still sort of waking up and doing it every morning and feeling like you're you're sort of earning that success when it comes. So you are human. There are some issues there. Just want to make sure. I don't think anybody who tells you about their business and says everything's 100% dandy would would be telling you the truth. Before we go, just the last thing, uh, what's the best advice you might have for listeners or people trying to start their own business and who are just thinking about it? And then also, if you're interested, the best way for people to contact you to say thanks. Mm. Okay, best. I'll take the second one first. Best way to contact scottscheapflights.com or just email me scott at scottscheapflights.com. And best advice or lessons or anything that you have for the listeners. Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. Just search for millionaire interviews in your podcast player and be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. I think one of the pieces of advice that I really take into heart is the idea that I think young entrepreneurs put a real sort of premium on the idea of you have to come up with a very original idea that nobody's ever done before. If you come up with an idea and then you research it and see like, okay, yeah, there's somebody else out there somewhere, you know, say like in Omaha or in, you know, Portland or somewhere. Or Fort Collins. Or Fort Collins is doing this that like, well, don't take my idea. But <laughs> Austin's cheap flight stuff. <laughs> yeah, no. But, but you know, there's the notion that like if anybody else anywhere else is doing this, it's not worth doing. I think that's a misguided notion. I think that if you had to research and see if other people are doing this, that means that obviously the market's not saturated because you didn't know about it. And that means there are a lot of other people that didn't know about it either. And so if it's something that you really feel like excited and passionate about and feel like you can do well and and especially do better than the existing services, you know, that's the whole reason to go forward with it and see if you can, there's still like market space out there. There's still uh, uh, the opportunity for you to do better. And worst case, if it doesn't work out is a great learning experience, you know, that like, 
I know that sounds cliche, like, oh, you know, it builds character and whatnot. But like legitimately, there are a lot of skills and stuff that you learn along the way, everything from like integrating different, you know, SAASs and different apps and services to like how to, you know, building out price points to like how to cold pitch journalists to how to handle like customer service and support issues, all sorts of stuff like that, that you learn along the way that those lessons then you can take with you to your next venture, even if your first one or second or third one doesn't work out. So, you know, both not being afraid to start and like not being afraid of failure, because you're still going to walk away from it with a, a lot of experience that you can use for your next big idea. All right. Well, you know, thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Hopefully, if y'all check out Scott's cheap flights, hopefully you can find your uh, next cheap flight as well. So thank you for joining us, Scott. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Austin. This is great. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Take care, man.